Welcome back to APIs You Won't Hate, episode 17. Uh, I have Phil with me, and we're joined by a very special guest today, Matthew Reinbold, fresh from Postman, who is the director of API Ecosystems and Digital Transformations, here to talk about um, their report, the 2021 State of the API Ecosystem. Matthew, how's it going? It is going. I am happy to be here. First time caller, long time listener. Is that how we say that? I think so. I think that's, yeah, that's how you say it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, for those of you, like, in the off chance that someone doesn't know who you are in the API ecosystem world, uh, can you give us a little bit kind of about yourself? Like, you manage two different newsletters, at least, as well as a pretty prolific um, Twitter presence as well. But um, if someone hasn't run into you, like, who are you? Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for calling it prolific. Some people would call it annoying, but yeah, I I, I manage a fair number of tweets over at Twitter slash l i b e l underscore v o x or libelvox. That's where I talk about digital transformation and APIs and a lot of technology stuff. Occasionally, stirring up fights with uh, blockchain and NFT enthusiasts. But then yeah. I also manage. I also manage uh, a newsletter called Net API Notes, where for almost 200 issues going back to 2015, I've covered the landscape. I've shared essential bits of information. I've tried to boil down the the um, current climate and and get it right into just the most essential things that decision makers need to know and care about. And then I do a fair amount of blogging on uh, a blog that's very imaginatively named MatthewRimbold.com. Um, and there I, I talk about a fair number of things as well. But in, in, in short, uh, my passion is really about coaching people, helping people, teaching people to get better with their API ecosystems. That's really cool. So one thing that kind of struck out to me, because so we're going to be talking about the 2021 City API report. However, I'm curious, since you've been doing it now since 2015, you've been keeping notes on uh, the API world. How does... You're kind of, and I hate to say this phrase, the 30,000 foot view of everything that you know from 2015. How does that kind of line up to what um, you saw with the 2021 State of the API report? Oh, that's interesting. So there's definitely been a, a maturing. Uh, as a industry, we've gone through a number of phases. Those of us that have been around the block a few times see trends come and and most often they they tend to roll away. Um, and over that time, we have to develop models so that we can kind of pick the 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 wheat from the chaff. You know, what what are the properties of of something new, some kind of buzzword, some kind of hyperbole that we can latch onto and, and say, yes, this is worth investing in. This is worth um, our interest and our effort. Versus, yeah, this is some marketing. This is some some spin. As I'm looking at the 2021 Postman report, I, I see where we've come. Uh, it's, it's gone from being single point-to-point integrations, one-off bespoke APIs, to where we're now talking about things as ecosystems. We're now talking about collections of these things and how entire organizations manage these uh, as, as um, something that's beneficial, something that's uh, collaborative and and managed as a separate entity rather than than um, 
each individual unit. I've got Phil here, so I have to use the forest for the trees analogy. Rather than just managing the individual API trees, there's now a greater awareness of what the forest what the forest's role is in a company and how to manage that in a unique way as opposed to the individual pieces. I, I will say for those that are listening, like I'm one of the things I want to highlight right up front here is that you don't have to enter an email address. It's not behind a paywall. We really felt strongly at Postman that we had to get this information out to the most number of decision makers so that they could make better decisions, so that they could be informed as they're developing their strategies and roadmaps. So if you go to postman.com slash state dash of dash API, you'll be able to download it without any worry about having somebody from sales follow up with you later or getting spam in your inbox. It's free for all. We want this information to be used. We want the dialogues to happen. We want the discourse to be rich and foamy and frothy. And so please, you know, don't let uh, past uh, marketing spam stop you from checking this out. We want this in the hands of people. Fantastic. That's good to hear. I mean, that's um, I haven't got around to reading it. As you might have seen from Twitter, life has been a bit of a mess uh, recently, um, just spending far too much time in the field as opposed to in the field doing API stuff. Um, but yeah, that's definitely always been a concern of mine of, you know, you hear about these white papers and, and reports and y- you just know so many of them like should have just been a blog post, but instead they're like a, a PDF that, um, and you've got to enter information and then you're just getting like that fifth email. Like, why didn't you reply to my previous four emails? I'm like, I don't know who you are. I just wanted to read this thing. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you folks are going in a different direction, but, um, maybe just taking a step back, like what is the, the state of APIs, um, report? all about where are you getting your information from what sort of research is being done and and what's the what's the goal of it great question so this is as far as i know the largest survey of its kind we had more than 28,000 people respond to our our latest in a series and what we tend to do is try and track where the industry is at. And typically that's been around certain areas, like how much time do you spend developing APIs? What kind of tools are you using? Um, really good stuff there, uh, tracking the growth of, of the industry and the maturation of the industry. Uh, what I brought to the table this year was an interest on finding the behaviors that lead to sustainable, healthy API ecosystems. Like, so much of what we talk about when it comes to API ecosystems is still very anecdotal. We tell stories about the Bezos Amazon memo, or we, we talk about like Twilio or Stripe. But when it comes to decision makers in large organizations, they're still trying to pull at what are decent KPIs. What are the behaviors I should be grooming or promoting within my company to make sure that I can keep producing quality API experiences again and again and again? And so... What we did with this report that I'm really proud of is dig deep and discover like what are the correlating behaviors in organizations that lead to good things happening for companies. Okay, that's interesting because I think there's always this question around like what's a good API and what's a bad API, right? And that's just such a nebulous, almost pointless topic so often because you're just going to end up with opinions about 
camel case versus kebab case and opinions about rest versus graph ul and all the nonsense that we love to fight about and there's going to be someone with a favorite http status code and none of that actually matters but you're talking about more of the business level stuff or uh what what sort of things have come up as like really interesting results from from your survey about how to build a good api what's 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 new and what's interesting right well one of the things i wanted to look at was some of the insights that popped out to me when i was reading accelerate so accelerate is like from you know the previous decade but it was written by N- nicole forsgren jess humble gene kim they came together and tried to figure out like what was it about devops that was so powerful. And they wanted to do it in a, in a way that quantified things, not just like, hey, this is awesome. You should be doing it. But like get to the meat and potatoes of why is this powerful and why should businesses adopt DevOps? And as they went through their research, um, they ended up discovering that there was really four things, four metrics that showed how DevOps made for better organizational performance. And those things were lead time, deployment frequency, mean time to restore, or how quickly you recover, and the change fail percentage. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting. Now that's for DevOps. But if these things are so instrumental in having organizations outperform their peers, can we find the same correlation with APIs? If we have the same behaviors, can we therefore then draw a line and say, if you have these things, if you have positive aspects of these four attributes, can you then have a more sustainable, more powerful API program? And based on our survey results, the answer is yes. So I can, I can go in and how we, how we drew that correlation. I'm curious, we, what sort yeah. of metrics are we looking at here? Yeah, so first off, we asked people on a 10-point scale, what, how, how well do you think that you've become API first? So out of our 28,000 respondents, they, they looked at this 10-point scale and they, they put themselves, you know, how they felt. Approximately 8% of the people that responded said, yes. We are either a nine or a 10 on this scale for API first. We said, fine. And then we went through and we said, okay, you know, how long does it take you to make an API? Are we talking hours, days, weeks, so on and so forth? And we also said, okay, you know, not just time to produce, but how frequently you deploy and how many times do you have a deployment failure, meaning like you put something in production, but it didn't work right. So you have to roll back. And then like, what was your time to recovery? Like when an outage does occur, and, and let's be honest, an outage always occurs at some point. Yeah. Like how how quickly can you recover from those things? So we got these nice, you know, bell curves and everybody kind of gl- clumped toward the center on these things. And then we said, okay, now the magic is we go back to that first question. The people that say they're API first, that have some kind of strong belief that they're doing API first let's see how they compare to their peers on these metrics. And again and again, all four of these items, API first people performed better. So, you know, taking one uh, example here, API first people were able to deploy 17% faster than their peers. And, you know, in a day or less. So, 
if you are API first, and granted, there there might be some subtlety in how a company defines that. But bottom line, if you are API first, you perform better on these metrics than your counterparts. Interesting. And yeah, seeing, seeing as you raised it, what is API first? There's, there's a lot of different definitions floating around, right? And so just for listeners that might not have listened to everything we've ever talked about and read every blog post we've ever read uh, or ever wrote, uh, how do you define it? Sure. Well, first, for people that haven't heard this and haven't listened to every episode, shame on you. Second, <laughs> I define I define API first as making the API experience or the interface the primary means for the functionality exchange. So not viewing like I'm going to create this functionality and then subsequently go and some other team or or some other project will be wrapping this thing in an API. It's thinking of creating an API experience as the primary exchange mechanism with this functionality. Not a library, not a module, not a class, the API. So this is slightly different than API design first, which is I am going to subsequently talk to stakeholders, create a model, whether that's in an open API document or some other means, but I'm going to sketch that out, test my assumptions, and then subsequently only begin code afterwards. That's API design first. I do draw a line between those two. They are very copacetic. They, they work together like peanut butter and chocolate, but there, there is a difference. You can, you can do API first without necessarily being API design first. For sure. Oh, well, we've got you on a roll. You're doing these really well. What is um, API as a product? <laughs> Ooh, API, API as a product. So that is creating an API with the um, awareness that it will have a roadmap. It will have ownership beyond just being put into a production environment, that it will grow and change and subsequently necessitates the kind of modeling uh uh, responsibilities and and awareness that it will be growing and changing over time. Dope. Okay. So instead, yeah, API first is your product should have an API and that will be managed by the team who is making this product. And API as a product is a slight variant of API first that kind of takes that API out of that generic functionality team and says the API itself is the product. And another team, potentially or the same team, will be making a product using that API. But right, I, I would, I would, I would venture. There's a lot of large enterprise um, environments for which API first is about a project that gets the thing into production, and then that thing is left to operate and run on its own. Perhaps there's some mm. monitoring, perhaps some some observability, but the actual team that made it is off doing the next thing. And the next thing, and the next thing. Um, there's not the idea that this is a long-lived item that that produces some kind of um, business functionality value that is competing in a complex, dynamic marketplace. Like that. That's the API product side of the house. So the, I, I guess, like the the big question to bring up, I think, right now is what did the pandemic do for the API ecosystem? Uh, well, you know, f- first of all, I, I want to just stress that that this thing that we kind of hand wave is the pandemic. 
was actually like multiple conjoined crises all at once. Right. You know, okay. I, I, I want to, for the audience, like we're, we're talking social unrest and political upheaval and supply chain disruption. And, um, the, the pandemic was really a, a catch all for a tremendous amount of business stress. And what we've seen in the report is the usage of APIs, the number of APIs, um, the, the amount of focus and care on APIs has increased tremendously with that pandemic because business leaders, technology leaders are struggling with this amount of change, this amount of disruption. And so having architectures that are slow to change, difficult to change, is just not cutting it in this uh, set of multiple crises. So any kind of architectural advantage that allows them to change rapidly, change quickly, to um, do different things with how their development uh, investment is deployed. So, you know, for example, taking that one dev team that was all together in the office and being able to break it down into microservices to allow for greater asynchronous operation, greater flexibility. Those are the architectures that are being sought right now. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it at least here in America, I don't know what Phil's saying, but you know, like there's still like at the core level, there's still like the whole, do we go back to the office and we stay in the office upheaval as well. So it, it makes sense that there is kind of like a, a struggle on wrapping, like getting non-technical CEOs, CTOs, CFOs, their heads around the game changingness of APIs. It That doesn't surprise me at all to hear that they're still kind of, I don't want to say struggling, but unsure, maybe like, well, it might be and, the right word. Well, I, I think that's an interesting perspective because it assumes that leaders were in command and control positions of how the labor was divided anyway. And I would actually, sure. I would actually um, posit that it's the opposite. It was everybody immediately going and running to their home offices and, and working in a remote work environment. The, the change in the communication paths changed the architectures that were subsequently produced by those teams. It's Conway's law in effect. And, and therefore, <laughs> as we, as we look forward, as we look forward to what's going to happen, I would, I would venture that the organizations that pull people back to centralized locations for whatever reason, I'm not going to debate whether that's good or bad, but the people that pull the development teams back together, You'll see like the Terminator 2 bad guy, they'll reform, remold, <laughs> because there will be more efficient communication patterns when everybody's face-to-face, -face, whereas those organizations that continue to have a distributed workforce will have more distributed uh, architectural patterns because that's how communication is happening. That's really interesting. And I, I haven't really thought about it before, but I... I I bet there's been a, an uptick in kind of API design for specifically due to this as well, right? Because my experience working at WeWork was was pretty awful as far as like API planning goes. And as a result, API architecture and API performance and just everything was awful. You don't say. You should blog about that, Phil. <laughs> I've done yeah. 25. <laughs> I've done a book about that shit. Um, Have you tweeted about this yet, Phil? Like, I'm not sure if anyone knows your true feelings at heart here. I did a talk recently. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there was there was such an element of like we're all in an open plan office playing ping pong together and shooting each other with nerfs. 
um, that there was never any effort on API contract being written down in any shape or form because you're all sitting about and you're just like, what's that endpoint called, mate? Oh, it, slash whatever. Oh, oh, is that uh, is that property a Boolean or a string? Oh, it's a string called, you know, true with quote marks. And then you never need to write it down because you just shout it over over the top of Nerffire. Um, and I, I do wonder if uh, remote work, well, not necessarily remote work, but quarantine remote work, um, has helped push people more towards it. Because if you can't all be sitting around asking each other, you're going to be typing out the contract over Slack. And if you're going to be typing it out over Slack, which is inherently ephemeral, then you might as well type it into a YAML file and commit that in a repo. And then you can have design reviews around the pull request um, or Absolutely. other tools that, that offer that sort of thing. So yeah, that's that's just completely a, a hypothetical and something I'm thinking this second. I haven't checked that, but... Sure, it's happening. No, I, I completely agree. And, and let me throw in something that's not in the report, but something that's got me totally geeked out and I'm, I'm watching for on my radar. We are going to see the greatest renaissance of API design documentation that we've ever seen in the next couple of years. Now, granted, you know, as far as renaissance goes, maybe renaissances for documentation are not that great. So, you know, let's put the party hats back in the closet. But what we're seeing with the great resignation right now is all of that knowledge that people acquired in their heads is leaving. It's headed out the door. And I've read reports like up to 80% of how to do things with APIs is in people's heads. Like at WeWork, if you needed to know how APIs worked, you asked Phil. You know, you knew Phil was the guy that could get you straight. And, and I didn't have a clue that was the problem. I was trying to find out how to do it. <laughs> Okay, so I wasn't. Was it was somebody. It was somebody on the other end of a of a, a nerf battle. Away Someone from who Bill. quit already is the person that knew. <laughs> but right now, in organizations, like you have this phenomena where a tremendous number of people are leaving organizations, and they might have been the sole person who knew where the endpoints were, or knew how that particular tricky function worked, and. As organizations are trying to deal with this and recover and still be productive there's going to be a greater emphasis on having that crap written down, having things documented so that organizations don't aren't left on their back foot like they are right now. So whether that's heavy-handed processes, whether that's just a greater appreciation for documentation among the, the staff that's left, whatever that manifests as, there's going to be an increasing amount of emphasis on documentation because people have seen that too much was stuck in people's heads and it's not sustainable. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and not just kind of documentation, but the the whole open API as a source of truth earlier on, I figure has to be, has to become more noticeably important when, yeah, they've, they've lost the whole team that knew how that API worked. And you know what it's like, code's always a bloody mess because you just hacked everything about all over the place and patched things and fixed things and mucked about. Um, and, uh, yeah, when they find themselves rewriting the API because no one can really take it over and no one remembers how it works and there's no documentation for it and it's just too hard to figure out when they just make a brand new one um, and they have a whole brand new team doing it because they've already lost all their stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's a situation yeah. that a lot of managers and business people are going to say, how can we go about avoiding doing this? And I just hope there's someone in the room that says, well, API design first would really help avoid this problem because otherwise they'll just repeat all the same mistakes again. 
Right. Absolutely. Whether it's design first or tools that help analyze existing traffic and write the document afterwards, like whatever you got to do, get that written down and start taking some notes against it. Because um, it's, I believe right now with the great resignation, it's an Achilles heel that's, that's probably hampering a lot of organizational ecosystems right now. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, it it shows in the report um, under OpenAPI 3.0, 44% of people are aware of it, but they don't use it. 28% say they use it. 12% say they use it and love it. So even just combining use it and use it and love it still does not match aware but not using it, which means that there is definitely a a a river to jump over, so to speak, to getting more people onto OpenAPI, which is probably currently like the standard for API documentation right now, um, which comes back to your point, which allows me to start writing things down, start documenting things. If Phil gets it by bus tomorrow, we could work happen. still going to be okay. It very well could happen, <laughs> um, which is exactly why I use that example. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, it'll give the organization a little bit more, um, or a little less reliance on what's in people's heads and a little bit more um, stability in case Great Resignation 3.0 happens in three years. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. Is that when everyone resigns from Web (laughs) 3.0? Please, don't don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) I've already already muted those Web 3 and NFT on my Twitter, and it it cleaned it up so much. Why do you hate progress, man? A lot of reasons. <laughs> I'm a curmudgeon at heart. Uh, nah. Maybe hey, it's the you don't, if you, messages of this progress that are the problem. If you don't stand for something, you fall for anything. Good for you, Matt. <laughs> yes. I've always wanted my life to be attributed to a uh, Hamilton quote, so I'm glad I, <laughs> I could check that one off. Um, to get back onto the actual topic and not just bashing NFTs for an hour and a half, which sounds like a lot of fun, what surprised you the most about this report like what was something that you read that just you weren't expecting i i think um there was two things that when you combine them together uh, it made me uh tilt my head and go huh the the first is that more than anything else including speed to production people want quality apis they want stability, they want some other things, reliability, but the primary thing that people want out of their their APIs is quality. And yet, when it came to whether or not people had time to test, everybody acknowledged that testing was good, tested was valid, but nobody had enough time for testing. And it's like, huh, these two things kind of seem like the the two sides of a coin, right? You know, like people aren't getting the quality that they want, but everybody acknowledges that they don't have enough time to do testing, even though they recognize that testing is an extremely valuable type thing. So I think when it comes to socializing this report and talking to decision makers and doing the kind of coaching that I so often do, I, this is one of those things to to bring up. Like how in your program are you supporting uh, testing and ma- ensuring that enough is being done there so that your developers feel like you're, you're reaching the kind of quality goals that, that you're, you're promising to the rest of the world. Hmm. Do you, 
is the survey broken down by role? So can you can you look to see if managers and engineers are, are all very interested in, in high quality um, and engineers are going, but we don't have enough time. And the manager's like, oh, they definitely have enough time. <laughs> right. So we do have a breakdown by role and job title, but I don't have the um, numbers in front of me that that combine uh-huh. and, and show me how to break down the the quality question. Yeah, that would be an interesting one because, uh, yeah, so many roles, so many organizations, I, I just take it as like a universal truth is that companies are just, you know, business and product are demanding feature, 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 feature. And engineers are just like screaming, just keyboards on fire, trying to trying to hit them goals. Um, right. And everything's just wonky as hell. And it seems to be everywhere I go. There's not enough testing. There's not enough time for QA. They might have got rid of the QA team because it slowed down product. It slowed down delivery of features. Um, yeah, everyone wants high quality APIs, but no one wants to put the time in to testing because testing is inherently right. hard and slow. Right. And kind of along those same lines, another stat that jumped out at me was that 76% of the people building APIs have less than five years experience doing so. I mean, you know, as far as restful APIs now, we're we're more than a decade into that journey. So that stat leaps out at me. Like, what is it about API development where we're getting people with zero to five years experience? Like, what's happening there? Are the successful API builders aging out and becoming management and no longer doing it? Are they moving on to Web 3.0 and NFTs? Like, like what is... <laughs> Where are our experienced API builders and why are these critical pieces of business infrastructure in the hands of relatively younger people? That's not to say that they can't be uh, doing a good job, that that it's impossible right. to build a great web experience at your first time at bat, but... It's also something where I think everybody on this call would probably agree that experience counts. Experience matters. Um, being around the block once or twice, you pick up a, a feel for what's beneficial, what's maybe a little wonky, and you can imbue that into a, a better design at launch. So you know, where are the... 10 year, the 12 year, the 15 year veterans, and why are they not the primary source of, of API infrastructure development? Yeah, that's something I've seen so much. Again, just I love complaining about WeWork. Um, pretty much everyone there was a junior developer, right? Like the vast majority were, were junior developers, and they're all responsible for creating, um, you know, there's like 100 APIs and, you know, a, more than a hundred junior developers with just a sprinkling of seniors who were more on the cowboy coder end of things. Not, not to be rude, you know, like startup, you need to be super agile, super fast, not, not a perfectionist. Um, and so, so many of the problems were, this is this person's first rails app. Like they know mm-hmm. how to accept incoming JSON parameters and they know how to spit something back from the database. And that's that. And they know how to make a web request. So A talks to B, talks to C, talks to D, talks to E, talks to F, talks to G in the thread. And then no one's got a timeout anyway, so everything falls over. Like Things like that are 
the sort of thing you realize if you've been doing APIs for five years or for 10 years, if you've been doing it for 10 years, you wouldn't do that. You just wouldn't do that. You'd put something in a sidekick job and, and implement a WebSocket or a webhook or literally anything else. But um, that's the sort of thing you do when you consider uh, like HTTP failures or, or server downtime to be an edge case that, that is like some weird scenario that probably won't happen. And and when you've been doing it for a longer time, you're like, you like you change your mindset to this web request probably won't work. Right. <laughs> and on the off chance that it does, this is what should happen. And you just get really defensive and paranoid and have like 25 different guard statements and, you know, 25 different types of ex- exception catching and, and every single circuit breaker and, and trigger warning that you can possibly put on this thing. Um, and there is, yeah, there is a, a change in mindset around around that kind of it doesn't I'm, I'm not being a gatekeeper or elitist there and saying you've got to be doing apis for 10 years until you're good but when you start out you, you're such you're more of an optimist you haven't seen it go wrong in as many ways um you haven't had cascading failures and you haven't had all these terrifying things that happen so that that is definitely a concern for me is that i think yeah happy happy path development when you go from having one api to having 20 or 100 the the um the chance of straying off the happy path gets exponentially worse right and and that's just something i think a lot of these younger developers aren't experienced with right even even when it comes to design having used apis having to incorporate the apis you better understand what makes a good description and what is just a reiteration of the the name itself yeah you know, if i have a field called date of birth and the description is just the birth that the date that the person was born on like well <laughs> what was the source like uh, do i need to refresh it or is it cached you know like uh, can i store it or is it part of some kind of regulatory pii and i shouldn't you know i can use it but i shouldn't store it like there's so many issues that once you've been down that road and then you're asked to produce an api you bring that experience with you and you you put it into the description that adds so much that um yeah i i i don't know how we continue to get that that experience um circulating and get that in front of people um but i think it's really important well i almost wondered too like how many of those uh, like experienced api builders are getting swallowed up into stripe twilio google and kind of almost locked away working on their APIs and not able to share their experiences down the road to junior uh, developers in their own companies or in their own networks, things like that too. Because it feels like you do your five, seven years as a developer, you get pulled into the management game, and then all of your knowledge is still there, but you're having to balance both managing a development team, hitting your goals, um, pushing out products because you've got to make money for the business and all of your knowledge that you've worked so hard to gain is kind of sidelined in the name of um, profits or KPIs or whatever it might be. Possibly. Uh, there's there's certainly exceptions that spring to mind, one of which is Tim Burks and the team over at Google and with the number of resources that they put out there around AIPs for their APIs. Um it's it's kind of a mouthful, but if you do a Google search for that, they've 
produced a tremendous amount of documentation about how they support APIs at scale, how they do their design reviews, how they think about consistency and cohesion across their entire footprint. So uh, that's certainly what you described could be the case in some places, but you know, I, I, I do think that it's not necessarily the default that people go off to these big organizations and then just disappear because the folks at um, Google around uh, Tim and his crew, uh, they're doing some great work. Well, so I've been sat in the room with you having these sort of conversations uh, at your last job, right? Like uh, center of excellence type stuff. You, you get a bunch of smart people and me together and start talking about uh, what what would help with these various different problems. Like how do we do API design reviews? How do we do governance? What standards should we be interested in? So I, I think sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes experienced developers can get sucked up into these companies and, and kind of vanish um, and, and end up having their skills used for something else. Um, <laughs> but I, I think companies that, that have those governance processes, like they're sharing their experience back by creating style guides, by creating programs that explain how these, how these like API design life cycles or API life cycles sh- should work. Uh, and that's a way that they can essentially um, distribute their experience. So instead of like, I know what to look for when I'm reviewing a pull request. They can create a style guide that means that everyone will do that. Um, I think the danger there is that when style guides focus on uh, what instead of why, then then you kind of lose some of that experience because it just seems like arbitrary decisions delivered from upon high, right? You just get like, do it this way, but but why? I've read loads of style guides recently um, and, and some of them, I wish I had the examples, but it's just like, do this, I'm like, why don't tell me what to do you're not my dad like it just <laughs> I, like i couldn't figure out what they possibly could have meant by it because usually i can look at something and go why might they mean that uh oh that reminds me of a thing that happened along those lines they probably got burned by that before and they want to avoid it but if you don't say right. why it just sounds arbitrary right. and you're not actually teaching anyone anything but right, if you do it right well, that, that can be really helpful right and it, it's also uh, essential that if you're designing these systems um, like a governance or like a center of excellence, that you have the feedback process, that you have the the communication cycles, so that when people do have that kind of question, that they have a recourse. It's not a dead end. It's not either you do this or you're punished for it. But, oh, if this doesn't make sense, here's who you talk to. Here's how you can escalate your concern. Here is how you elevate your edge case. And we can have a discussion about it. And you can help co-evolve this thing because you own this as much as somebody else. The the phenomena that you des- describe where it's a dead end and it's thrust upon you, you don't have ownership of that. And as a developer, that does not feel good. That does not invest you in seeing the long-term uh, growth of, of that system. You want to burn that system. You want to be the rebels flying through the Death Star Trench. You want to take that thing down. So what's essential is to realize uh, you provide the avenues for people to to voice their concerns, voice their questions, and make them feel heard in such a way that their process, the process is theirs. It's not something done to them. It's it's their process. I'm just laughing about the the Death Star rebel situation. <laughs> now I'm completely distracted. I need to go rewatch some Star Wars. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, your your thought on the ownership thing is also interesting because 
at least like watching the the junior Twitter, the junior developer Twitter circles, which is not the end all be all of it all, but there is a large emphasis on if you want to make more money, you need to jump ship every two years on average. And that kind of removes the, or not the desire, but like the, the ownership of any sort of product from a junior developer, because in two years, they're going to be on to another thing. They're going to be on to another system, another code base, maybe another language. And it, it, it does almost kind of bring back, like, how do you entice people to have ownership, even if they only are going to plan to stay somewhere for a short period? Um, because we all know that like having, like you said, having that ownership is going to kind of make you more invested, more caring, more thoughtful, more empathetic towards whatever it is that you're building. Right. I, I mean, we're veering into management um, territory, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, I, oh, I'm, I I'm very allergic to management. So, <laughs> But I, I was just reading um, Harvard Business Review. Hey, I'm fun at parties, too. Um, so I was reading Harvard Business Review uh, talking about COVID and the Great Resignation and the the management challenges that that come with that and what we need more of in all companies is a feeling of belonging a feeling like we have a career progression a feeling like our 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 work um has impact and all too often management just is about making sure people don't do dumb stuff right you know, I'm I'm here to police you because the organization doesn't trust you. And it leads to all kinds of weird effects like, hey, if you actually want to grow your career, you need to leave. You need to hop companies every two years. And let's be clear, that may work, but it's still very disruptive, not just for the company, but for the individual as well, because they're having to rebuild all of those social structures, their relationships, their patterns, their routines. Uh, it, it's not, it doesn't come for free. And so from a management standpoint, if you can show people how to have that fulfilling career, how to fulfill those needs, they don't have to jump ship every two years. There's no reason that that has to be the default blueprint. And from a company standpoint, you actually benefit from that accrued experience rather than having a developer that's done the same thing five times you get five years of experience, right? That's really powerful, really tremendous. And that that ultimately not only leads to better APIs, but leads to a better employee. So uh, there is a disconnect. We need to work with our management layers. Uh, it shouldn't just be the technician that uh, has some headcount is by default manager. There needs to be uh, uh, an appreciation for how those are unique skill sets. Those are unique muscles that need to be exercised. But if we can create that fulfilling sense of duty, then, and the, the career path for these individuals, we can get them off of this kind of binge and purge career treadmill. So that's a really, yeah, that, that's a really good way to put the whole two year churn. And I mean, it, it comes back full circle to, um, what you just said earlier, which is, you know, 75% of APIs being developed right now are done by people with less than five years experience. And that's probably because those same people are jumping, jumping, jumping. Whereas if you can keep them around, make them happy, make them feel like they belong, we might actually start seeing that number drop significantly to more experienced API developers. Um, 
building more thoughtful APIs designed with with years of knowledge built up. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of what happens with this great resignation, um, how that all shapes up. And then it'll be interesting to see too, kind of the 2022, say the API report, how does that, how, how will things change from a year uh, in a year going forward? And what can we expect possibly looking at these two years the next five years after that, the next 10 years growing on uh, different trends. You know, we might see NFTs ruling the world. We might see GraphQL ruling the world. No <laughs> Phil shaking his head. <laughs> Matthew is kind of shrugging. Uh, we're, we're all sad. Not a bit. We're all sad. We're now. all sad. A- we're NFTs all sad. powered by GraphQL problem solved. Um, can you still right click that? No, you can't. It's over post. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there goes our Each unique query is published as an NFT. <laughs> and you can put the ownership of that query in a blockchain so that you don't have the centralized point of failure. I was going to thank you for being um, for, for making this podcast sound intelligent for once. And uh, <laughs> and then I ruined it. Sorry. You- <laughs> no, no, so, no, you didn't ruin it. You just brought it back down to its normal level of uh, <laughs> ridiculousness. Fantastic. No, uh, do you have any predictions for what we're going to see in the in, in next year's State of APIs report? Because then we can play that clip back and, and laugh at how wrong you were. Oh, oh, lovely. Um, all right. Well, let me have a few minutes to sandbag my answer. Um, no, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of, of areas where we can take this correlation that I talked about the four behaviors. Um, you know how the, the question immediately becomes, well, okay, if these four behaviors are so good, and are present in high-performing API companies, how do we get there? And this year, we had a little bit around leadership and what leaders do to get an API-first company. I think there's a lot of um, exploration we can do there to really dial in and say, okay, we know these things are good. How do you get there? How do you promote these things? How do you How do you get it so that you are able to deploy in a minimal amount of time or recover faster? What are leaders in those organizations doing? That's one of the things I'd love to dig into. Um, obviously, uh, a lot of post-pandemic uh, aftermath. There's been a tremendous amount published about how this digital transformation and, you know, we're so much more flexible and adaptable because we we are now doing all our conversations over Zoom. And I look at that and I, I scratch my head because... Uh, digital transformation, at least in the non-buzzword compliant way, is a whole lot more difficult than just moving everything to a Slack conversation or a, or a Zoom conversation. Like it means fundamentally dismantling your policies and procedures and reinventing them in a way that digital technology lends itself to. So, figuring out what that post-pandemic landscape looks like and how we're still feeling the knock-on effects is going to be something that's also going to be very interesting to explore. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, I think one thing I would like to see is, is that number of people who know open API, but don't use it start to gradually shift down and people who are using open API start to shift up, which, you know, for all circles, right back to having documentation and some sort of 
notes about their API. Um, so when the, the knowledge people do eventually leave, because everyone leaves the company at some point, the knowledge isn't necessarily leaving. Um, and instead, we're, we're kind of leaving a better legacy to the people following us. Here, here. Cool. Matthew, <laughs> thank you so much for um, taking some time out of your, your, your day to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Um, look forward to having you back in roughly a year's time to talk 2022, say, the API report. Love it. Let's do it. Pencil it in right cool. now. Yep. It's, it's on my calendar. I don't know what I'll be doing in a year from today, but I know for a fact we'll be talking again. If you want to catch Matthew on Twitter, he is at LibelVox, L-I-B-E-L underscore V-O-X. Um, and we'll throw the, the link to your blog and Twitter in the show notes as well as everything else. Um, awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Us.